Good morning, everybody. My name's Paul, and I'm one of the pastors. I get the privilege of closing out the uh, family series today, and I know um, it's, it's been a very impactful series for a lot of people, and so I thought I would start by just sharing a couple of funny images about family, because family, let's be honest, that word itself can bring up a lot of images. They can be it's something we talk about in Discovery, by the way, that, that starts next week. But um, it can be a lot of negative images for some people. It can be a lot of, it brings up a lot of difficult memories and, and things. It can be a lot of positive images for people. It can be a lot of both for each and every person, right? Because no family is perfect. Um, when I think about marriages that last and families that are happy, uh, for me, I'm blessed to really think about the family that I grew up in. Thankful that, that I had the opportunity to be part of that family. But uh, it also makes me think of some funny things that I've seen and, and read about over the years. Like, for example, a 50th wedding anniversary, right? It's a big celebration. It's the golden anniversary. I just got past halfway there, and it seems like that there's still a long way to go, right? <laughs> there's still a long way to go to get to 50. But at a 50th wedding anniversary, the husband and wife were sharing their thoughts. Uh, people were, you know, wanting them to make a speech. Obviously, it's a really big deal. And the husband stood up and said with a very heartfelt um, tone, after 50 years, I have found you tried and true. Tried and true. 50 years. Almost like starting to tear up a little bit as he said it. And he did not get the reaction he expected from his wife. She kind of looked a little upset. Gave him that look, you know, after 50 years, you know the look. And so he thought maybe he just needed to say it again. After 50 years, I have found you tried and true. And again, everybody's kind of like, oh, and she's upset. She's mad. She looks at him dead in the face and says, well, after 50 years, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> yeah. Communication is important, right? In marriages that last. Another thing that I, I read about was a young lady noticed a, an older couple at a restaurant. And they were sitting at a table, and um, the wife was uh, just sitting there and waiting, and the husband was taking care of everything, setting everything up. They had one sandwich, and he was carefully uh, working on it, cutting it perfectly in half, and then he began to eat. And this young lady was like, I, I wonder what's going on over there. Why don't they have two sandwiches. Why are they only eating one? So she went over and she said, I've just been watching you and I really appreciate the way that you're taking care of everything and setting everything up. And um, I'm curious, you know, if you would like me to, to buy you another sandwich, I'd be, I'd, it would just be my honor if I could give you a, another sandwich. And, and the wife looked at her and she said, oh no, honey, it's okay. We share everything. It's fine. She's like, no, really, I, I, I would love to buy you an, a sandwich. No, don't worry about it. We share everything. And then she noticed that the husband had started to eat while they had had this conversation. And she said, well, okay, I, I, I'll leave you alone. I just wanted you to know that I really appreciated how you guys were interacting, and it, it meant a lot to me. And, she, and you can go ahead and start eating. I don't want to hold you up. She said, oh, no, it's all right. It's his turn to start with the teeth today. <laughs> right? We... we we can think, I'm glad y'all are laughing because I wasn't sure when I was saying it to my, you know, when I was saying those to myself, it's always hard to tell. Uh, 
we get a lot of images in our mind when we think about family. And one of the biggest places, unfortunately, that we can get influenced in our image of what the family is supposed to be is family through the ages kind of on television. You think about how the family's been represented on TV over the, over the ages. In the 50s, you had Leave it to Beaver. Ward and June and Wally and the Beave, right? This was the idealized family of the time. In the 60s, you had the Andy Griffith show, where Andy was the widower who was trying his best to impart these family values to his son, and he had the help of the, the community around him, and so they worked together to try to, to solve these issues that, that would pop up, but you had the Andy Griffith show. In the 70s, you had the Brady Bunch. It was this big blended family, right, and all that came with that. It was the first time, really, a blended family had been shown on TV, and you had one day at a time the single mom working hard to make things happen for her two daughters and, and trying to you know, keep those relationships what they were supposed to be. In the 80s, you had the start of the longest-running sitcom in history. Guess what it is? The Simpsons. The Simpsons, which is still running today. And if you think about how that family is represented, um, it's kind of the start of the doofus father, right? And this is an image that starts to carry through a lot of our culture. The doofus father that doesn't know anything and ends up messing everything up. Might as well just lock him in a room and keep him out of everything, right? In the 90s, you had Married with Children and Roseanne. In the 2000s, you had Everybody Loves Raymond, which again was kind of this continuation of the, the doofus dad that sort of messed things up. I liked that show, by the way. Um, in the 2010s, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say that, you had a Modern Family. And today you have things like Trophy Wives and Sister Wives. And over time, the family has become less and less idealized in our culture. And what's scary is a lot of the writers of these shows have admitted they have an agenda of pushing the envelope of what the traditional family is in our culture. They are actively trying to get us to see the family in new and different ways. And the article I read called this the evolution of the American TV family, as if it's a good thing. As if it's a good thing that the family has become less and less idealized over time. And as that image and understanding of what constitutes family has changed in our culture, we've also seen an increase in so many negative statistics. From the 50s to today, suicide, drug abuse, domestic violence, incarceration, all have dramatically increased in the same span of time. And I think the greatest single issue in our culture is the family, the destruction of the family the destruction of the image of the family. Few things are more broken in our day, as Alex shared in some of his statistics last week um, in his message. God created and designed the family, and our society has slowly but surely moved away from that design at a steady pace. And we want to close our series out today by looking at God's design and humbly submitting, maybe we should listen to him. 
Maybe our image of what the family is supposed to be should come from Scripture and not from TV or other cultural sources. And one of the principal places we see God's design for the family is in Ephesians 5. And I wrote on here that I was supposed to tell you the page number, and then I forgot to look at what it was. What is it? 1,082, if you have the Bibles that are in the, in the racks and the seats there. 1,082, Ephesians 5. And I want to recap this letter really quick and put this passage we're looking at today in context because I want to remind you what's led up to this chapter. And I also want to say before we get into this that God's design for the family, again, if you're not living out that design or things have happened in your life that have already broken that for you, remember God is a God of hope and forgiveness and redemption and restoration that we can start today pursuing God's design for the family and see what God wants to do in our lives. We don't throw our hands up and just give up because things haven't gone the way maybe we had hoped they would. We're responsible for not just when we fall, but for how we get back up, for how we move forward, for how we allow God to move where he finds us today and in the things that he finds us in today. So this message is for everybody, whether you believe it or not. So In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out these incredible benefits of knowing and following Christ. And in chapter four, he starts to move into our responsibilities as followers of Christ. He says we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That because of all these great things that have happened through you knowing Jesus, there's some responsibility for you to represent that relationship correctly by how you walk. And he further explains what he means in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God because of all that he's done for you. Show him to the world by how you live and how you love. So when we read this passage about the family, the roles of husbands, wives, and children, we need to see it in the context of the overall letter, that Paul is detailing aspects of our lives where we have an opportunity to live in a manner worthy of our calling. We have an opportunity to show the difference that knowing God really does make in how we live and what we do and the decisions we make, where we can represent God to the world um, through those things. So with that background... I want to read Ephesians 5, 22 to chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, 
Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, so before we dive deep into this headship and submission stuff, which are words that can almost immediately put people off when they hear them, as soon as, as, soon as they're read in a public space, kind of maybe some hairs on the back of your neck stand up or you suddenly have to go to the restroom or what, those kind of things happen, right, when we hear those words. They can cause people to close themselves off from what God might be saying because of how those words have been misused, misrepresented, even in the church. I want to draw your attention to verse 32 again. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here, Paul's summarizing this entire section by giving marriage a meaning and a purpose much broader than just the marriage itself. When he says this mystery, he's not talking about the difficulty of understanding love or attraction or the secret to a long-lasting marriage or understanding that your wife often means the opposite of what she just said. Um, Maybe that's just me. Sorry. No. (laughs) When he says mystery, he's referring to a hidden purpose that God has for marriage. It's a mystery because it had been concealed up to that point, but now, because of the revelation of Jesus, Paul says marriage is an image of how Jesus and the church, his people, relate. Marriage is an image. It's a metaphor. It's a God-instituted metaphor to help demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church. So to really understand these roles and these words that we don't like, um, Paul describes in these verses, we have to understand what they represent. Ladies, as wives, you are compared to the church, to God's people. Men, as husbands, you are compared to Christ. And our relationship to one another is a metaphor of God's marriage to his people through Jesus, our Savior. It's designed to be a reflection of how those two relate, and it's built on the foundation of verse 21, which we didn't even read. Verse 21 where Paul is summing up what it means to walk in wisdom, to walk in obedience to the will of God, his final thought is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, some make the mistake of thinking that since there is a mutual submission in verse 21, it somehow cancels out the roles that Paul talks about right after that. That doesn't make sense to me. Why does he take the time to do the next 12 verses? He's building on the foundation of our mutual submission as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's saying that within marriage, that plays itself out in specific ways and through specific roles. So yeah, we're mutually submitted out of reverence for Christ, but then that lives itself out in our homes in a specific way. Because the passage we read comes right after that. The marriage relationship begins in that mutual submission because of our love for Jesus, and that's because Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the anchor. Jesus is the center. Mutual submission doesn't eliminate or counter anything that Paul says about roles in the family. It lays the foundation for it. And so with that understanding, let's see what Paul says about these specific roles. He devotes 12 verses here 
to unfolding this difference in the ways that this uh, relationship of husband and wives and kids to one another plays itself out. And again, starting in verses 22 with wives, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, ask to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body as it is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. I even had trouble reading it. Yeah. Imagine yourself in the room with Jesus and the disciples on the night of the Last Supper as he begins to wash their feet. Picture that scene. Jesus doing the ultimate act of service to the disciples as he begins to wash their feet. And they were submitting to him in that moment, to his humble service. Remember, they felt kind of awkward about it. And Peter even voiced that he didn't want Jesus to do it. He said, oh, no, you're not washing my feet. I'm not worthy for you to do that. And Jesus said, if you don't let me do this, you can't have any share in what's about to happen in my kingdom. And so Peter says, well, then don't stop with my feet. Do everything. (laughs) Right? I just love Peter. He's just so right there on the edge. But in that moment where Jesus is kneeling and washing the feet, do you think any of the disciples had a question at all about whether or not he was still their leader? I don't think so. They didn't doubt it for even a moment. Being mutually submissive, serving one another, does not nullify the role of leadership. It doesn't cancel out the reality that someone takes that role. What Jesus did for us is define leadership with service. He defined leadership with servanthood, with humility. He showed us that leadership in God's way of doing things means that you become the biggest servant of all. So ladies, what God is calling you to is to submit to a humble, loving servant that seeks only to build you up. Does that sound a a little better than how it's sometimes presented? So there are roles, they are distinctive, they're born out of mutual love and service to one another as followers of Christ, and husbands take their cues from Jesus, his servant leadership, and wives take their cues from how God's people, the church, respond to that leadership. So going back to what submission actually is, let's define it for you. Submission, the submission we're talking about here, is your divine calling to honor and affirm your husband's leadership and help carry it through according to your gifts, according to who you are, according to how God has created you. Submission to your husband becomes a reflection of your submission to Christ. And when you take this whole section in context, Paul is saying, if you're following Jesus, if you're walking in the spirit, you submit to your husband as you do to the Lord. It does not mean your husband is the Lord. Very important distinction. If your husband is leading to a place that goes against what God would want you to do, your husband is not leading in the spirit, right? So your submission is first and foremost to the Lord, and it's supposed to be reflected then in your relationship with your husband. It does not imply that your opinion and your input are somehow excluded from the relationship. What it means is that as the perfect partner for your husband, you use your strengths, talents, and abilities to encourage him toward leadership success. And as we all know, he needs your help. (laughs) Right? We need the help. And this has a big implication. I've already said your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord first. Your primary source for security and significance is in your relationship with God. It's not in your husband. 
It's not in your relationship with one another. And this is a central and common element in these verses. And it points out, I think, a major failing in our understanding of marriage today because we seek to find things in our marriage relationship that can only be really found in God. We seek to fulfill ourselves through our marriage relationship in ways that our partner can't possibly fulfill because it can only be done through our relationship with God. Our most basic relational needs are for acceptance, love, and security. And throughout our lives, we seek to meet those needs in all kinds of ways, a lot of them not the best, right? And society has told us that if you can have the perfect marriage, it's one of the best things to pursue to have all your needs met. We, I, have, you, have you felt that or heard that or sensed that? The problem is no marriage will ever live up to that expectation. So we're setting ourselves up for frustration when we don't find our purpose in the proper place. Marriage is designed to be a reflection, a metaphor for the only relationship that can truly meet those needs, our relationship with God as his children. And so when we expect marriage to replace God, we can only find disappointment, disillusionment, and frustration. So you've got to stop expecting your marriage relationship to replace your relationship with God. That's got to be first. Stop expecting your marriage relationship to replace your relationship with God and start letting it be what it's intended to be, a reflection of that ultimate relational fulfillment that you can only find in him that helps others see their need to know him and experience him as you have. So again, Paul's saying your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. He's your primary source of security and significance, and we live out these roles in marriage with that as our foundation. And I know we've mostly talked about submission. And by the way, there's only four verses for wives and like eight for men. Uh, So that ought to tell you something. Um, We've mostly talked about submission. We can't go too far, though, into submission without addressing what Paul says to husbands because they're two sides of really the same idea. So let's look at that part of the passage again and then come back. Verses 25 to 30, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, this is really interesting. You would expect if Paul instructs wives to submit that he would turn right around and instruct husbands to lead. But he doesn't. Husbands, we're not instructed to lead. We're told to love. And he he gives us... (laughs) three responsibilities related to that love. We're not told to lead, we're told to love, and we have three responsibilities. We love our wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, and we love her as we do ourselves, as our own bodies. So, first of all, love sacrificially as Christ loved the church. Love sacrificially. Jesus gave his life so that we could experience this gift of knowing God, of being forgiven, of finding salvation. Jesus gave his life. It's not a romantic feeling. It's not a physical attraction. 
It's a humble, serious commitment to die for the needs of our wives. That's the kind of love we're talking about. To put nurturing and supporting her above all other wants and desires in our lives. She becomes the most important thing that we're trying to fulfill in this relationship in our lives. And we do that. We love her sacrificially with a goal, the goal of making her pursue holiness. Aim at making your wife holy. We're called to love sacrificially, not to earn her love, not to earn her respect, not to earn her admiration, but to fulfill a much higher calling, to propel her toward godliness, to do all we can to assist her spiritual growth and continued maturity in Christ, building her up every chance we get. You see, it's, it's about serving her. It's not about yourself. Marriage becomes about serving, not about what you get, but how you can serve and give. So we love sacrificially, aiming to make our wives holy, and then we care. Care for your wife. And he makes this very explicit. He says, because you are one, by taking care of her, you take care of yourself. There's no longer just a man and a woman. There's a marriage that creates a single identity in Christ. And when you understand your relationship that way, it cuts the legs out from under a lot of the selfish motives and the petty bickering that we have in our households. Again, maybe it's just mine. But husbands, if you're hurting your wife, you're only hurting yourself. You're only hurting yourself. So then what is this headship really? What does it actually mean? It's the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. It's not a position of, of power. It's a position of service. It's not the right to command or control. Any man that demands submission in a marriage has gotten it completely wrong. Men, we do not deserve submission. You don't deserve it. You earn it through loving and serving and giving everything of yourself for your wife. You're not compared to Jesus because of his position and his power. You're compared to Jesus as the head because he gave up everything to become the sacrifice for all of humanity. That's the leadership you're to show in your home. You aren't instructed to lead here. You're commanded to love. Submission's not something that can be coerced or forced, and that's not how Christ wants us to respond to him. He doesn't coerce us or force us. It's to be a free and willingly given submission, which is in turn encouraging and strengthening and unifying. I'm doing marriage counseling with a young couple in our church right now. It's my first time to ever actually perform the wedding ceremony as the officiant person. I've sung in lots of weddings, and People didn't think I could do the other part, and I was kind of glad to be hiding in the shadows, honestly. Um, but so I'm getting to do all of the uh, premarital counseling and all that stuff for the first time. And one of the phrases in the counseling stuff that stood out to me this last week, it gives a good clarifying summary to this passage, I think. And that is, it asks these questions. Men, do you love your wives enough to die for them? And ladies, do you respect your husbands enough to live for them? If we'll ask ourselves those questions, we'll be able to live out this relationship 
as God intended. As we follow Jesus in mutual submission to him, he gives us the power. He gives us the motivation to fulfill these roles. They don't just come natural to us. It has to be out of submission to Christ. And just as with all things humanity is touched, our sin touches and twists and mars this marriage ideal. What's supposed to be a sacrificial, loving leadership from husbands that serves and encourages ladies toward godliness gets twisted into hostility and domination or lazy indifference. What's supposed to be a willing submission from our wives using their gifts to help husbands fulfill their role becomes twisted into manipulation, disrespect, and outright combativeness at times. It's sin that ruins these roles and makes them seem ugly and destructive. When we think of the idea of redeeming the family, of bringing it more in line with what God wants it to be, we move toward the recovery of this picture by understanding our roles as the model of Jesus and the church. So headship is not a right to command, demand, or control. It's a responsibility to love and serve like Jesus. Submission is not mindless or coerced following. It's a free response to Christ-like servant leadership. And Paul sums it up like this in verse 33. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There it is, love and respect, a reflection of God's relationship to his people, the church through his son. Well, what about kids? A lot of homes have them, right? Some have more than others. (laughs) Let's read again verses one through four real quick. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, this is pretty straightforward, honestly. Children should obey and honor their parents. Not a lot of room for debate. It's something that once again has slowly been lost in our culture. But God's design for the home is that parents are pursuing Jesus and leading their kids by relying on the wisdom and direction of God. God's design for the home is for parents to pursue Jesus and lead their kids by relying on the wisdom and direction of God. And then kids do their best to honor and obey that direction as it flows down from their parents to them. And once again, it speaks to the responsibility of the parent at the same time putting into words this instruction to the kids. And of course, men, once again, were singled out, right? Singled out to lead by example and be active in the parenting process not to be a passive observer, to be active in the discipline and instruction of your kids. You know, our culture has moved further and further away from this idealized family image. We've gone from the 50s of leave it to beaver to modern family, trophy wives, sister wives, and society calls that an evolution. But it's actually a continued twisting because of the influence of sin in our world. We need to listen to the author of the family in Scripture, not to the authors of the latest sitcom about what the family is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to work. God means to say something about his son and the church by the way husbands and wives relate to each other. And God loves us perfectly. 
He wants the best for each and every one of us. He wants the best for each and every household. We need to stop believing that somehow we're the exception, that somehow we know better than him. We can't twist the meaning and the purpose of marriage and family away from his design and not expect there to be consequences. We've seen those things. Many of you have have experienced those things in your own lives. But God's a God of redemption and restoration. God's a God of love and moving forward. He designed the family, including the roles and how we're to interact and serve one another. He says, men, lead by serving and laying down everything of yourself in the process. Ladies, submit by doing everything you can to use your gifts and talents to see your husband's leadership attempts succeed. Kids, honor and obey your parents as they seek to pursue God and lead your family in his direction. And all of those interactions are built on the foundation of our submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. God says, this is how the family works best. I humbly submit, maybe we should listen to him. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for today and I thank you for this series. And I know God, it it does hit people in all different circumstances, in all different situations, in all different stages of life. And God, I just pray that what you wanted to do in me will happen. That what you wanted to do in each and every person that you drew to this place today will happen. That we won't let past baggage of negative relationships or misuse of these words or or all of the, the things that sin can do in our lives keep us from listening to your your plan, and your direction, and experiencing your love. God, wherever we're at today, I pray that we would see that as a starting point, not as a finishing point. That it's a starting point that we can move forward from, no matter where we're at, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've seen or experienced, whether we've been married before or not, that we can say today, God, moving forward, I want to do relationships especially in my home, the way you designed them to be. And that we would stop taking our cues from all of the other sources. We would take our cues from you. And God, if there's anyone in this place today that needs to say to you for the first time, I've never surrendered to you as my savior. I've never experienced this love. I want to do that today. The things I've experienced in my family actually have kept me away. And today I want to surrender and say yes to you. God, I pray that they would have the courage to do that, whether it means finding someone in the back of the room to visit with or writing it on their Connect card, but letting us know in some way. And God, as we move into a time of response, I just pray that we would be ready to say yes, that we wouldn't let the next few moments rob us of what you want to accomplish, but that we would be surrendered and submitted to you first and foremost. And we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. As I mentioned, this marriage relationship is a metaphor between Jesus and the church, and he gave us something called communion to remind us as we do that of the incredible things that he did when he laid down his life for us, when he made possible our forgiveness from sin, the bread representing his broken body and the juice representing his spilled blood that makes it possible for us to be forgiven and to experience eternal life through him. And so in these next few moments as we respond, we want you to 
to respond to God however he leads you to, to have the freedom in this, in this time to allow him to speak and for you to speak back in how you say yes to him, in your posture, in your prayer, in seeking someone out to pray with, whatever it is that God wants you to do, that your spirit would be ready to experience the reminder of communion before you take that. But more than anything, for this to be a time for you and for God to do business together with one another. If you need prayer, you can use our prayer walls. You can write on the Connect card. Derek, would you be willing to be in the back of the room? Anyone that needs to talk to Derek, because I'm going to be up here playing guitar again. Uh, or I, you can find me after the service. That'd be great, too. But we want to help you take a next step in your development of who God wants you to be, whatever that means for you today. So let us help you. Write it on something. Ask for prayer. Talk to someone. Don't leave here today without allowing God to do what he wanted to do when he brought you to this place. No one's here by accident. We love you, and we are thankful for the opportunity to serve you. Let's continue to worship as we respond.